learning lesson for me to grow and expound as a spiritual human being. I believe that I am an old soul. Um, Emma Watson, American Los Angeles accent. How do we feel? How do we feel? I think it's pretty good. I heard <laughs> she. I heard that she really wanted to get into that accent. It was very important to her that it was authentic. Uh, I think she got the vocal fry correct. Um, that's a doozy. Her performance in that is a real trip. That whole movie yeah, I, is a trip. I can't tell if it's a movie or a documentary. I don't know what's going on. What are we talking about? We're talking about Stranger Than Fiction. It's the yes. new cycle on Film Trace. New set of eps. We're focusing on movies based on true stories, but sp- more specifically, true stories that I think pretty objectively one could argue are, uh, you know, attribute can be attributed to the old adage that they're Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger than me. I uh, did the. I'm already going to bring in chat GPT into this whole thing Fuck. to figure out. I know that you hate that because you're a teacher, um, but I did cheat uh, to see what chat GPT said about Stranger Than Fiction. Shall I? Shall we see what Skynet says? Oh, um, you enabler. I'm going to. Yes, I love AI. It's the future. Uh, Stranger Than Fiction. The phrase is often used to describe real life events or situations that are difficult to believe but are nonetheless true. It can suggest that reality can be more surprising or unusual than what we can imagine or create in fiction. That's pretty Hmm. good. And that's not even the fourth version of the new one. That's the old version. (laughs) Pretty good. What are we doing? This is film trace. Should we do the the stinger, as we called it? Sure. (laughs) I don't think that's the right word, but yeah, let's let's properly introduce the show for anybody that might be new to what we do here. Uh, You know our tagline a lot better than I do, Dan. We haven't done this so long, I forgot it. This is film trace. (laughs) We trace the life of a film from conception to production to release and reception. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So, you know, we kind of dive deep into a film, analyze it. Uh, kind of figure out what it's all about. Stranger Than Fiction's the new cycle. This is our first episode. We're doing it kind of how we used to do it. The newest films first. We have a new one. Chris, what is it? Um, yeah, this is this is your pick, right? Uh, it is my pick, yeah. You uh, decided that, um, you know, after our long, well-deserved break, we'd come back and talk about Cocaine Bear for yes. 45 minutes somehow the oh. masterpiece that is cocaine oh, bear come on come the, on well remember the alternative was 65 which i That's saw true. last night that was my suggestion and because we want to do sci-fi sci-fi is probably gonna play this here a sneak peek um yeah yeah unwatchable really basically an unwatchable film so i'm glad that we chose cocaine bear but it's really all not, it's not that much better when I'm thinking about it. Not that much better. <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's get, what do you want to do? How do you want to dive into this thing? I mean, I feel like for this collection of episodes, we need to first start with the true story. Sure, yeah. And then talk about how it's fictionalized, dramatized for the screen. Because um, nearly every movie we talk about, and pretty much every movie that at least attempts to claim that it was based on a true story, even the ones that are straight up lying, like Fargo, um, yeah. uh, tend to... Uh, fictionalized way more than even perhaps like a creative nonfiction writer might. Sure. Um, this is not like Devil in the White City or Killers of the Flower Moon, both being adapted right now, but neither of which uh, have gone through that Hollywood treatment. Um, yeah. And Cocaine Bear is a particularly interesting one to start with because its true story is like literally two sentences long. <laughs> and, and of course... Uh, add to the fact that this is uh, at least an attempt, I think. Is it fair to say it's an attempt at like a throwback exploitation flick? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely a throwback exploitation. Okay. Not a bad, yeah, I would agree with that. So, uh, and whereas most of the films we'll talk about um, during this cycle uh, are movies that are at least attempting to try to resemble some kind of real truth and, you know, portent, if you will. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I mean, that's, a, that's a, we're already, this is why I chose this. Oh, it? my God. loaded the suggestion because, uh, you know, we think about it like, oh, they're trying to depict something that's true. Or are they just using the veil of truth mm-hmm. to bring some weight to the story they're trying to tell? Yes. Let's let's dive into Cocaine Bear and figure that one out. Okay. Uh, got the true story wanna... logline for us. Do it. Uh, it was originally reported by UPI. It's as simple as this. Cocaine was apparently dropped from a plane piloted by Andrew Thornton, a convicted drug smuggler who died uh, September 11th of 1985 in Knoxville, Tennessee, because he was carrying too heavy a load while parachuting, um, died upon impact. The Bureau FBI said that there was also a bear found uh, later that week in northern Georgia uh, among 40 opened plastic containers with traces of cocaine that Thornton threw off uh, before he jumped, knowing that he had too much to jump and survive, and he still uh, biffed the calculation. (laughs) And that's it. Like literally like the opening scene of the film and yeah. the fact that there is a bear that has ingested cocaine. Yeah. That's that's it. Everything else is fill in the blank. Oh yeah, it's kind of genius. It's like uh <laughs> I mean it really is cuz it's like you you think of like how do you want to start? It's like a writing prompt. Yeah, that's true. Here's the the problem with that though is that it's the it's like this should be the end of the story, not mm-hmm. the beginning. Right, like the whole thing. It's like the going through the the conception of this movie is hilarious. Like uh, how Jimmy Ward and the screenwriter came to find out about it via Twitter. He mm-hmm. found out on a Twitter, you know, whatever rant someone was going on. Then he went down a rabbit hole and looked at all these things and was like, "Oh, this is really fascinating." Uh, you know, Elizabeth Banks gets involved a little bit later. It's almost as if the entire thing is kind of a joke, even to the people involved, oddly. Um, But it's funny enough or interesting enough to get through the gauntlet that is Hollywood production, which is mind-blowing. Because you think of all the people that have all these interesting ideas, all the artists, all the people who want to be writers, and it's basically a lark that gets through the studio system because it's stupid enough and zany enough where they're basically like, yeah, let's make this thing. It's different. It's weird. It's cool. Um, it's gory. Uh, it's, it's mind blowing. And the fact that it's like, it's sort of a true story is almost irrelevant on some level, maybe. Well, like you kind of inferred, it's a hook and essentially yeah. that's it. Right. Um, it's one of those outlandish, like weird news items. Uh, I feel like almost, you know, tantamount to like a Jay Leno, uh, blip yeah. on one of his stupid segments back in the 90s. Um, and the thing that like I am struggling with, and I know we've already mentioned this before we even chose to do a episode on uh, the movie, is yeah. that it suffers whether, you know, you claimed it to be successful or not. You know, your mileage may vary, uh, as is the saying, but how close... And I know we, we will we'll trace this more as we talk about the details of the production sure. and marketing. But um, this is a real snakes on a plane, Sharknado type morass that 
uh, otherwise <laughs> seemingly talented people have gotten themselves involved in, right? Oh, really? Okay, that's an interesting take. That's an interesting I, take. I, I just... I like that take. That's interesting. I don't... And this it, this ties in also with my original claim at the end of our last episode in the Risque Romance series, which is that I always struggle with based on a true story movies because yeah. I would... And this is going to be like kind of my thesis statement that I'm going to keep coming back to. So get ready. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love thesis. Thesi? Thesi. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> Thesi? Uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> is it... When you are basing... A film, a fiction film on a true story. Sure. Aren't you always going to, isn't it impossible to avoid exploitation at some level? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a tough one. And I think that there may be exceptions to that rule. You're going to have exploitation at some point. (laughs) I think, you know, Bling Ring is going to be a way better example of that later on at the end of the episode. But I mean, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, you have a point. You, there's an entry point on that thesis without a doubt. Like yeah. there's definitely a discussion that has to be had about like taking somebody's story. In this case, it's a dead bear uh, and a dead drug dealer. Right. So you're not really going to exploit anybody here. Unless uh, he, he legit, I, we don't know this guy's real story. Uh, obviously he's not the smartest person, <laughs> but also like he's a, he's a living, breathing human that had pro- family. Right. And, true, true. and can you imagine that like you hear as well as his, you know, granddaughter his is, or whatever. His name is like spl- splattered over this whole thing over and over again. Oh yeah, totally. And he's, it, you know, it's, it's basically a joke cameo um, by Matthew Reese of uh, yeah. Carrie Russell's husband, also longtime co-star from FX is the Americans, yeah. which also co-starred Margot Martindale, who's also in the film. Um, and it's just like, I, 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 and it's you know maybe something that is not on the the frontal lobes of most people that watch it, but I I just I can't help. Um, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, when we get to Dog Day Afternoon. Um, oh yeah, in, in the 70s and um, uh, Serpent in the Rainbow in the 80s is like there's these like magnificently strange stories that. On its sur- on their surface, like yeah, it it's fun to retell and it's yeah. engaging and there's entertainment and perhaps some art to be had from it. Um, but I just keep thinking, like, can you imagine being this guy's granddaughter and you hear from like a friend at work or something? It's like, oh yeah, it was so funny. The guy like hits his head and goes unconscious before he even jumps out of the plane. And he's, and he's played. And he's played by the guy from the Americans yeah. with like a big fake mustache. Um, it it kind of begs the question. I know that they do it for a hook and they're like, that's how the movie came to be. Cause it was just like a crazy true story. Something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ripley's believe it or not. But yeah, it's like, eh, couldn't you just, you know, we'll talk about this in the terminal about how taking a story and kind of doing what you want with it to kind of create something that's way more entertaining and way more just like a movie or narrative. It's kind of weird with this one. It's like, do you even need to have the the, the guy, the drug dealer follow the plane die? Right. Do you really need that? You probably don't. And right? you definitely don't need to use his real name. No, of course <laughs> not. But that gives it authenticity, don't you see? <laughs> so I don't uh, know. I mean... <laughs> Let, let's dig into the the yeah, production of this. So film. many good quotes. I I'm through. I'm honestly still a little stuck. I did not really enjoy this movie. To be completely oh, I honest, it was a masterpiece. No, uh, I was. Um, 
I was actually floored by how bad it was. Okay. Uh, on a whole variety <laughs> of levels. So many mixed signals. <laughs> yeah, it, it's bad. It's really, really bad for, yeah, it's not good. Um, how did this come to be? I have some quotes. Can I say some quotes? Yeah, like, go for it. Go for kitchen. it. This is Jimmy uh, Warden, the writer. This is what he told Variety. Um, it is my twisted fan- fantasy of what I wish would actually happen after the bear did all that cocaine, end quote. A Hollywood reporter, it's not every day that a title comes your way that describes the movie in two words. You understand exactly what it is and what you want it to be. Okay, great. Um, he also, this is like my, probably my, one of my favorite quotes about like him thinking about writing the script. Um, he goes, I knew that the central character had to be a bear who did drugs. I had personal experiences with both halves, he adds. I've seen bears in the wild. And as for co- cocaine, I mean, yeah, who hasn't done it? It's yeah, the, just, the first junk is just that. as much of a joke as the movie itself. I mean, but like, I'm sure that that's probably the point, right? It's a, yeah. it's a lark. Everything's funny. Don't take it seriously. I get it. But like, there's just so many layers of blase going on here mm-hmm. that it's just, it's a little bit hard to swallow. Um, here's an, uh, another one. Um, <laughs> what is, he's just he's just nuts. This guy's. Good. I feel like I felt like this movie could be the Bears' revenge story. That's Banks. That's Elizabeth Banks, the director. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do we think about those? Just to start out with. Well, it seems like. Honestly, I think both of them are coming from different places. They're both yeah. being kind of blasé and flippant, but uh, it does seem like Warden, whose only other credit is the sequel to the Netflix movie, The Babysitter, which is just like another kind of oh, yeah. okay. exploitation flick um, with like a modern sheen to it. Um, and whereas Banks, I mean, I I don't know. I, I keep wanting to give her a chance as a director. She's and it's tough. pretty She's it's tough. pretty amazing that, you know, she wasn't put in movie jail, as they call it, after flopping so hard with uh, the Charlie's Angels remake. Yeah. Um, and she's given the, I mean, but like the movie is relatively successful for an original story, right? Yeah. Um, not original in that somebody made it up but original in terms of like no previous ip right yeah yeah. um and yet she is she's the i mean there is a part of me that thinks like some of these jokes are uh almost worth it like i really do appreciate the joke of like the she has she says how you know the importance of telling women's stories because it's a mama bear Right, I, I, I can't see. I can't take any of that seriously. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not meant to be taken seriously. And I like. I, I know, but then at the same time, she's also like walking this line. Oh, I can't even get into it. I mean, there's like so many quotes from these interviews. Right, right. And so I think that as we tend to come back a lot when we talk about modern movies on this show, is um, we have to mention the pandemic. And I think yes. we've yeah, seen yeah. a lot of stories that have you know, been mined from the trauma and, uh, you know, succeeding despite the limitations and restrictions uh, put on um, the movie industry by the pandemic. But then we also have an equal amount of people just like, I just want to have fun. Right. We, yeah. There was that, uh, um, that, like the, there was there's also movies that try to do both like that what was that one like small time ifc horror movie we talked about we need to do something oh my god you remember that one um tried to have its cake and eat it too but then yeah. also like you have you bullet train 
Um, yeah, which it is complete trash, but uh, there's tons of people like it's one of it's it's been in the top 10 most watched Netflix movies. Like I've got tons of students that are like obsessed with the movie and it's also very much like, you know, arguably nothing more than a lark like cocaine. Yeah. Bear. Well, but that's even different, though, because um, you think it's not like bullet train where yeah it's obviously a pandemic film the way it was filmed and all that kind of stuff and the way it was produced but based on like a graphic novel uh, there is just sort of a there's a level of intention there that doesn't exist here right yeah. there's a level of like an attempt to do something big and bold and different it doesn't work no because it just it doesn't like land or connect and it's still it's still empty and hollow at the end of it i mean it is but like I don't know. There was just a a sort of ambition there. That there, there's not yeah. really an, there's not much of an ambition here, is there? I mean, no. like here's what he said when he wrote the script. I just wanted to entertain myself. Screw mm-hmm. a studio. I didn't think people would actually read it. Um, <laughs> it's, he's saying this as a, a former PA who worked with Lord Miller in Twenty One Jump Street. And so okay. that's how this movie gets made, right? Right. He basically passes it along, goes through the whole thing. Lord and Miller get a hold of it. Um, you know they're like into it uh what does he say miller says it was one of those things where you hear the concept and you're like that's interesting but is there a real movie in it then he goes on but jimmy did a great job making it into something that would be fun better than you'd imagine for something called cocaine bear there's also this i've noticed in these quotes and interviews there's this ping-ponging back and forth of this is a joke whatever but it's also like really fun and cool but it's also just called cocaine bear and it is what it is. Right. It's and like, I don't even know what you call that. It's like, they're oscillating between take us seriously. And this isn't yeah, interesting to I be- a total joke. <laughs> I believe that's called cognitive dissonance. Right. And it's also just like the nature of the beast um, for a movie that's hyped at this level. Right. Uh, you know, there was, it wasn't at the same uh, to the same degree, but like when Megan came out earlier this year there was a little bit of that happening too right um where and that's also universal uh where you know they're trying to they like do the press junket to death and eventually you're gonna have some people like the screenwriter akila hughes who also did malignant who's Mm -hmm. you know a very a a very intelligent person but also like self-aware that she's writing you know kind of throwaway garbage that just happens to be wildly entertaining yeah Um, but i mean you saw megan right no i haven't yet okay (laughs) so like megan uh megan's an interesting point because it's uh megan's pure camp sure exactly the the whole thing is uh, i don't know it's like i think i was listening to um who's it mark commode today who i always listen to of course and he was talking about um pearl uh that just came out in the uk like this week so that's why he's reviewing it but he was talking about like um pastiche right mm-hmm. and like how it's so difficult to do well because you have to ru- like walk this tightrope understanding genre undermining genre but you have to have a level of sincerity to what you're doing to do that, to do pastiche right. well, to do postmodern right. pastiche well. And that's like, I, I think that's a perfect, and Megan's a perfect example because it does take itself seriously as a horror movie, right? It, there is an intention and non irony to it, but the camp comes in and sort of, you know, really adds a level of levity to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I don't know. It just, it works it works in that environment where you do a genre film, but you're constantly undermining it. 
And it's like, where, I don't know, where would you put cocaine bear in that world? Yeah. I, I, no, I, I wouldn't because there, there's just not enough there, which is too bad. Cause once again, like I, there's, Banks keeps saying things in the press that makes me <laughs> want to give her more credit than I think we should. Yeah. Um, you know, she she says uh, that a lot of her inspiration for wanting to do this movie dates back to making Slither with James Gunn. Oh, I didn't read this part. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. Like, I think that is another, like really good solid example of camp where there yeah, is totally. like and gun is pr- a master at it and has sh- has proved that over oh, over so and over good. again um to balance that you know you know dramatic intention combined with the you know absurdism um but here you then you also have banks you know not even ma- not just making jokes about like telling women's stories but also um talking about how when she originally uh read the script this goes back to the pandemic piece she mm-hmm. says um the world came to a standstill chaos was all around me wiping down our groceries and fires are raging in california and i just thought wow there's no greater emblem emblem of chaos than a bear high on cocaine and she said that oh, directing man. this film felt she- cathartic like she could tame the chaos a little bit like, that like, makes you want to like the movie more. I know, but it, but you don't see that anywhere on the there. screen. There's exactly, it's not there at all. And there's like so the, the it, I, I that and this is one of those instances where like I, I feel like it airs more on the side of snakes on a plane than yeah. Slither because uh, I'm watching it and like they keep introducing characters and like I was thinking like oh that'd actually be a pretty good running gag if they just like kept introducing <laughs> characters throughout the whole movie but no it's just an overstuffed ensemble with like half-baked subplots and B, B storylines and it just it, nothing ever congeals and like it's just it, I mean it, it, the, the script reeks of somebody that hasn't that isn't taking things seriously and yet the person behind the camera is taking things too seriously and so you you instead of getting that balance you have you get that conflict and it just like oh, that's a good point it just it just renders itself limp i think it felt i think the the thing that stood out to me immediately i mean after the opening scene um with the guy jumping out of the plane and he dies it, it, it's even that opening when the cops are there talking with each mm-hmm. other yeah i was like why does this feel so dead yeah. Oh, yeah. It feels just sort of just leaden. It's just there's no mm-hmm. uh, activity or excitement happening on screen. There's no there's no pure cinema magic. No, I would argue the and I always have you know one scene even from the worst of films and for mm-hmm. for Scream Five it was the um the 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 kid in the house um great, daylight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That see, that scene's wonderful. That's yeah, great. Um, the rest of the movie, not so much. Um, and in Cocaine Bear, I I finally like clicked for a few minutes in the movie when the Mexican standoff happens at the gazebo with uh, okay. yeah. Isaiah Whitlock Jr. on the on the roof, sure. and there's actually like some fun interplay between the actors, and you can tell that they're kind of like riffing on each other. Um, and that and but then that's it. It's like there's like sprinkles of magic there, and it's if it and nothing else is happening all around it and like yeah i find i find a little bit of that in the um i forget the the actor's name who plays the the female forest ranger which is good right like she kind of shows up and yeah 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 
she owns those scenes for the most oh, part. Yeah, yeah. I like the the paramedics and getting killed, and that whole sequence was kind of interesting and cool. I thought like the direction I thought was going to go in was when other than the bathroom they get jumped by the teenagers and there's a like crazy gonzo fight that happens i thought i was like oh okay like this is this is the direction it's going to go in. this is going to be fun more of a romp type thing but then it just dies yeah. the next scene it's just there's no momentum it doesn't keep going at all um i was i was actually knowing the budget and the budget here uh between 35 and 40 million production budget doesn't look that way at all no it doesn't i mean obviously a lot of that went to the the bear which is you know i would say very good C, uh, cgi is the same yeah, uh, yeah. company that did avatar way of water the new one peter jackson's company um so they did a good job with that but i was just i was just i could not understand especially like that opening scene where they're in quote-unquote st louis even though it's ireland um <laughs> and i'm just like how I always wonder, and we, we do these podcasts and we, we talk about these movies and like, I'm not a filmmaker. You're not a filmmaker. So we don't really know how this stuff works, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's like, how do you shoot a scene like that? Like he, him eating the um, spaghetti at the restaurant mm-hmm. at the bar. It's like, how do you shoot a scene like that? And be like, Oh yeah, this, this is good enough. Like this, this really, <laughs> I, I watch this and I'm like, yeah. yeah, I like this movie. This is good. This sings, right? <laughs> I just like, how do you do that? And it almost, I don't, I don't know. know. I get the sense that this is a rush production for some reason. Like it yeah. felt like they had to shoot this thing quickly. Um, there's a lot of people involved. Maybe when was this shot? Was it in 2021? I believe so. To figure yeah. Out. Um, I don't even know. It's somewhere in the notes, uh, but it's during, still during the pandemic. Right. So it's yeah. like, maybe they just got a compressed schedule or something. There's got to be some explanation. I, have you seen Charlie's Angels or the Pitch Perfect 2 or other two movies? I've seen Pitch Perfect 2. I have not seen the new Charlie's Angels. Um, yeah, I think that there's like, uh, at least with the Pitch Perfect movies, right? The The thing about those is they're also ensembles. But yeah. even when the story limps along, you can fall back on kind Songs. of... Yeah, the songs and the in yeah. the comedic performances, and mm-hmm. that's another thing here is like, I I really do like Carrie Russell as a dramatic actor, but sure. she, she doesn't have many comedic chops, uh, and nor does um, uh, what's his guy, the guy who plays uh, Ray Liotta's son, oh Alden, um, uh, Alden Aaron. Aaron, yeah, I don't know, Aaron, I know some, some people are all, all all about him, and maybe he's just not given enough material because he is very funny in Hail Caesar. He's um, great in Hail Caesar, right? Yeah. So, I think I I do think it largely comes down to the script and the overstuffed half bake aspect of it. And I think you're right. I think that uh, perhaps because there is a, you know a breeziness to it. Um, there was the intention of thinking like that would add to like the, um, the larkness of it all, but it ends up just not, not making it feel, uh, really memorable enough. Um, this is not a movie that even as like, you know, get together with friends, watch a bad movie night would, would, uh, merit much rewatch value. Right. No, I don't think so. I mean, but the the thing about that though, is when you look at some of the like production notes on it, it seemed as though banks wanted to make Like you mentioned, it's like an exploitation film. Mm -hmm. Um, and like to some degree, I would say it sometimes rises to that occasion. Um, there's certain scenes with the gore and stuff like that. Um, but I thought there was a funny quote that came up 
uh, I think it was one of the Universal, or actually it was Lord and Miller, when Banks was pitching this, she, you know, she came with a pitch deck, uh, and they're like, she had a pitch deck. It was pretty gory. It had lots of body parts and internal organs in it. Uh, and then Banks goes, I don't recommend anybody to do this, but if you go down the internet hole of looking at an actual animal attacks by humans, it's fucking gnarly as shit. Then she says, I love gore. I grew up on evil dead. The gore Mm -hmm. is the part of the, is the fun part of the ride. But when I'm watching this and I'm a big gore fan and I think the, well, I can be, um, I compare this to the new evil dead trailer, which is just phenomenal. Uh, and I'm I'm laughing through the entire trailer. This two minute trailer, I laughed more than the entire Cocaine Bear. <laughs> right? I'm, not, I'm not even joking. It's not even close. Yeah. So I do wonder where the mark was missed here because it sounds like Banks had the right intention in being like, we got to go over the top. We got to do mm-hmm. a ton of gore. We have to have kids do cocaine in the first whatever 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. To like break all of these social norms to loosen people up. But then there's no payoff. There's no punchline. Right. Like there needs and, to be something more, I guess. I don't know. And, you know, Russell talked about this, too. In 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 her mind, it was a positive light uh, talking about how, you know, part of Banks's uh, part of the reason that it's probably a lot. It's very easy to work with Banks is because she's very confident and organized um, and she references like her part in what hot American summer and yeah. you know, her connection, in all those movies from David Wayne and the Stella guys. And, you know, in those films, it's like literally like jokes, like absurdity packed into every, you know, shot. Sure. And here, because there's so much like story and attempts at character drama and development, um, there really is no room left for that. And I also think that because she's really good to work with as a coworker, as an employee, she's oh. not going to do much to like mess with Warden's script, even though he's not a really known entity. She just kind of fell for it and just like wanted to put it on the screen faithfully. And I think that this is a movie more so than most that would really benefit from like loosening up on set and letting some things happen that you you know, that would be weirder than what's on the page. That would be more left field, right? That's interesting. Yeah. That's a good point too, because it, uh, Banks comes across to me and I got like a fine line. Cause I want to come across as like a sexist or chauvinist here, but like she, in the interviews, it's quite clear that she is, um, uh, a very accomplished and, um, amazing businesswoman. Yes. Business person, whatever you want to call it. She's a producer. She runs a game show. Uh, even there's a sides in some of like, I think it was this vanity fair about how they talk to her friends. And she's the type of person who um, she puts together a, a party and she's the person going around making sure everybody has a drink. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. she's very like thoughtful, but like always kind of being um, the point person and being in control. Right. Yeah. And then it's almost like the lifelessness of this movie feels like it's like, to your point, maybe it's too constrained right throughout the entire thing like they're too close to the script like you mentioned maybe but there's not enough play going on and it's like it's so fascinating that you bring up her background because you know all of those movies are interesting even role models which is not a good movie um (laughs) but it's a really fun movie and rewatchable. yeah super rewatchable because you could tell that like that's just complete 
improv for the most part. Yeah. Do you feel like I said the question, do you feel like there's improv going on here? If if there is, it's very limited. Like this Mexican standoff scene. You know, there yeah. like that seems like there was definitely like it was a little looser around the edges in a good way. Like that's uh without being like going full apatow and adding another ninety minutes to the runtime. Yeah. But like other than that, I don't know, like it, it, it like you you were describing like the the St. Louis scene and it's like I barely remember that it's and I so saw this movie terrible. 2 weeks ago like it's so bad like I was watching this and I was like how is this how is this in a major movie that costs 40 million dollars like it's just <laughs> yeah. it, I think someone someone brought this up on Letterboxd I kind of want to like dip down into like cuz I don't want to feel like I'm we're the only people like attacking this movie cuz we're not no, it's, um, what is he got on Letterboxd? Like a two point something? Three point? Not high. Actually, oh, what did he have on Letterboxd? I didn't even write this down. 64 per. It's not that. 64 is not bad. Okay. Um, what are this? Oh my God, some of these things. Uh, probably would have been a decent goof off horror comedy if it was made with any amount of humor or basic filmmaking craft. Okay, brutal. <laughs> Missing a few key ingredients here. There's another Sharknado. This is another Sharknado scenario. Somehow still lazy garbage, even though the cast and crew had the resources available to make something worthwhile. Not that I totally agree with that, mm-hmm. but there is some hint of like, you had tons of money. You had a great cast. You had an interesting idea. Yeah. But it's, it's, like, it's, it's, it's been proven over and over again, though, that it really doesn't matter how much money you have. Mm. It, it matters the ingenuity and the, the, the chemistry and the vision. The writing. And, and the writing ultimately, yeah. yeah. You so, got you got to start something. You got to start with a strong foundation. The f- foundation always comes in the storytelling and writing. I don't know. Maybe she. I haven't read this script, so I don't know. Maybe the script is way better than this. Um, also, that the the um, period piece angle of this is hardly even used. I know, it's right? Too bad. It kind of just looks like hipsters walking around a, right. um, there's a not national even like, park, a forest. There's, right? there's not even like any really good hard hitting needle drops. Other and than someone the, mentioned that too. Yeah, um, that the music was really odd, and I noticed it too. Yeah, totally. Was like, this is um, uh, it felt very. <laughs> like just flaccid the music it just doesn't there's no conjuring of like deep synths or something from the 80s it just i will say like the yeah the 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 pop songs but one of the only things my uh friend of the pod riley and i saw it together and you know it was nice to like hear a little bit of mark mothersbaugh the guy from devo doing the soundtrack used to do all the scores for wes anderson um but yeah, I mean, I think that like it's when you even have Mark Mothersbaugh doing your music and it's still like not fully clicking, then yeah. you know that there's like something off. How about this Hollywood Reporter review? Uh, they said no thoughts, just vibes. I don't even. I don't think I'd agree with that. <laughs> no, there's what vibes are here. It's and that I mean, <laughs> the vibes are ambient. Not, I mean, <laughs> not notwithstanding the fact that. That word is, you know, lost all meaning over the past several years. But. Oh, no, I, oh, no, I think it's gained meaning, personally. <laughs> uh, how about BBC? Uh, it's definitely better than Banks's last film, Charlie's Angels, but you can't help the, get the feeling that she's done the bare minimum. Oh, my God. So good. BBC really not. 
Not doing so hot these days. <laughs> oh, that's pathetic. Public that's broadcasting. Like, that's like evening standard writing. That's a little, little <laughs> London news joke for you guys. Um, what else? Do you have any any reviews you want to kind of pop in here? What do you got? Uh, you no, know, I do. I the one other thing that um, it, I think is worth mentioning that is maybe kind of a good microcosm of the whole problem with this movie is uh, uh, that. Uh, banks, you know, basically made an ultimatum because Universal was searching oh for God. other working titles. Yeah, and she said, I, "I, I'm out if we don't just call it Cocaine Bear." And on the one hand, it's like, no, you, you know, once again, people pleaser, accommodating. The writers got the right idea from the beginning. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, I mean, there, there is at least an attempt at camp there, but you yeah. also like run the risk of turning this into like more of an empty joke than it already is because like what it was you know within weeks after the trailer that cocaine bear came out all of a sudden meth gator is in development and it's just like we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna go down this rabbit hole just like we did with sharknado and that's uh, i have a a postscript to your quote okay so Banks says, yeah, I'm not going to do this unless you call it cocaine bear. Then she goes on. <laughs> she goes on. She goes, I lived through Zach and Mary make a porno. Yes. Porno, yes. Sorry. That title is a problem, she says. But I think Zach and Mary make a porno would be like whatever nowadays. Uh, I don't think anyone would even shy away from it because words don't matter anymore. She laughs. Words don't really matter anymore. In a single paragraph, we've gone from I refuse to do this movie unless it was called Cocaine Bear to words don't mean anything. Like that to me is the film. It's sort of like yeah. I get the the intention is there, the concept's cool. You have all these elements there, but there's just I I think it's there's no deeper purpose to making this movie. I don't want to sound like every movie has to have this deep artistic, passionate no. heart to it. But on some level, it kind of does. Like someone <laughs> has to want to tell the story and make it, even if it's a dumb comedy or whatever. Uh, and that doesn't exist here. And you can tell it on screen in every single in every single shot. There's just not yeah. a fire here to tell a story. It's just kind of a gag. Yeah. And I just yeah. I like she she's really good when she's on screen uh, with you know the weirdness happening behind the camera. But I, it, it really just like gives off the. If we're talking about vibes, ultimately the vibes I get from this. Now that we're talking about it, I've come to the realization. You know when like the popular kids at school try to make something funny. Yes, that's exactly what <laughs> like, this is like. It's just like oh, okay, you yeah, you don't have you're normie. You don't have yeah, the weirdness yeah. <laughs> to, that's required to make this work. The, the the funny people are like the burnouts, like Bill Hader was in high school, who got like D's, straight D's. He, right. Those are the funny people. <laughs> um, right. All right, what about uh, what about Bling Ring? Okay, our chaser. Have you seen this before? I did. I saw it when it first came to streaming, and not theatrically. Um, it was a it was a hotel movie. It was a throw it on. It's on. It's on HBO. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> and like, I like Sofia Coppola generally. Yeah. Um, I always think it's interesting what she's up to in any given movie, even if I don't personally think it works. Yeah. Um, but when I first saw it, it was very much just like. Okay, yeah, that was 
that's exactly what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and not much more. And I don't think I really got that much more um, in my 10-year rewatch either. What about you? Interesting. Never seen it before. Okay. Um, so uh, I had... When did this come out? 2013. Yeah, so I think I saw her 2010 movie. What was that called? Somewhere, I think. Yeah, that's uh, one I still haven't seen. Um, and I saw that in the theater. I was super hyped for it. It was an art film. You couldn't really... It wasn't in a lot of places, and I, I sought it out. I went to go see it, and I was um, pissed off afterwards. Because I was like, this is so bad. And, like, I love Virgin Suicides. I'm indifferent about Lost in Translation. Um, but because of Virgin Suicides, I will always give mm-hmm. uh, give her another chance, no matter what. Uh, and so that's actually, you know, I, I watched this maybe two months ago. And sitting there and watching this film is a bizarre experience because it doesn't really feel like a movie. It almost feels like a docudrama <laughs> where she's sort of filming what she thinks happened. And then she intercuts with like, it feels like actual quotes from the people involved in interviews, mm-hmm. obviously played by actors. It's It walks such a weird line between truth and fiction that I think it's just a fascinating case. It's only shot or made, what, five, five years after this happened? Uh, so, you know, it's a group of teenagers who basically in the 2008, 2009 in California and Los Angeles who uh, kind of find a way to um, burglarize famous people's homes by, by following them, essentially. And, oh, they're going to be out of town. They're going to be in uh, Tahoe mm-hmm. or whatever. And so they know that they're going to be out. So they go to their homes and, and just rob them. Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, Orlando Bloom, all of those types were robbed in this. So it was a, a huge headline-grabbing right. story, right? It was, And I think, I think one of the important details is that there's no, like, actual breaking and entering happening right because in, right yeah these celebrities think that they live in this gated community nobody's gonna like just jump the fence and walk in the front door or like paris hilton famously left her key under the mat and it was easily found so um there there's there's very little if not any violence happening no, no. to no destruction of property just coveting and stealing um so I, yeah, I do think that that aspect of it, and you know, this is it's interesting because you uh you 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 switched what our chaser film for this episode was going to be. I did. Um, um, and before you switched it, I had chosen we're going to go all the way back to 1959 by the end of this cycle of episodes with Compulsion, the famous Loeb and Leopold yeah. case, which is the uh, basically the 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 origin of um uh, a variation on the term affluenza. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 boredom of wealth that drives people to do crime, and that's there's literally like little to no other motivation behind it. Yeah. Um, though, of course, and this is I think where things get a little bit dicey, even though they at least prompt discourse with this movie, is like how much of this does it seem like Coppola is attributing to uh, their wealth and boredom versus and privilege. Versus yeah. like a legit like uh, a critique of you know social media and social capital, um, yeah. Which, I mean, which is that's... which is I don't know how I feel about that, especially ten years later. Well, it's interesting because I think the um, that was one of the critiques as the movie came out. There was sort of like, where is the the criticism here? 
Where is the edge? Where is the the deeper truth about what this is all about? Because it's sh- it's shot and acted so flatly, yeah. That there's just not a lot. the The sort of art artistry of it's in the construction and the aesthetics, not in the writing. Right. Right. And so that's where it becomes pretty difficult to be like, oh, well, this is saying this or this is saying that. But our guy, Richard Brody uh, from The New Yorker, <laughs> oh boy. Um, he has this great uh, kind of quote about it. He goes, in the bling ring, she casts her net wider than ever, delving into the irresistibly fascinating representations of the age, uh, the banal uh, some simulacra of selfhood. Uh, from which both ordinary social life and actual celebrity are made. Daring to face these often noxious, seemingly empty phenomena on aesthetic terms and taking on a degree of their flatness and simplicity, Coppola renders them surprisingly substantial. I 100% agree with him. I 100% agree with him. Because I was watching this and I'm just like, I don't understand what I'm watching. Because it it comes across almost like a lifetime movie, but there's something odd in the detachment of the. It feels so detached from like any messaging, any sort of moral. Oh, this is bad. Oh, celebrity culture is awful and it hurts things. And social media is terrible. None of that's here, right? There's nothing in the characters or how things play out that suggests that. But in the way she sort of constructs it and shoots it. It does come across as sort of this, I don't, um, there's this uh, almost imperceivable rot that's happening <laughs> in that sort of, um, in that aesthetic viewpoint, the glassiness of it all. And it's just, I don't know, there's something beautiful about the film. And maybe I'm just trying to make up for uh, her other movies that are terrible that I don't like. And I just really (laughs) want to like another movie, like version Suicides. But I don't know, this film has stuck with me. I keep thinking about this movie after I saw this like maybe a month ago. And it it keeps popping up in my head. That's... And I'm just like, why? Yeah. And and the, the choices here, too, are so fascinating um, have you seen anything she's done since? Like, what's the what's the other one she did? Um, I, well, yeah, no, I I really like her remake of The Beguiled. Okay, yeah, um, the old Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah, yep. um, I haven't seen On the Rocks yet. I've heard it's terrible. Uh, I haven't seen it either. Rashida Jones, Bill Murray. Um, but I, I it, this is perhaps a hot take, and I I'm I'm anticipating your big groan. My favorite right. film of hers is Marie Antoinette. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's okay. It's like whatever. I think that movie does everything that she was trying to like recapture in a modern sense with the bling ring, but with way more flair and aesthetics and like actual pomp and circumstance. You know, as the subject of the biopic necessitates. But there's just way more. There's way more to in to like enjoy and wrestle with and here it just feels like you said it's flat and that's part of the point but it because it's so flat it like feels so wispy to me that i can like i don't remember it like the only the only once again here's my one exception to even movies that i dislike (laughs) the the ingenious long static shot 
yeah. nighttime of I forget is that Orlando Bloom's house um, where we just there's no sound. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, we it's just beautiful. see them beautiful go shot. from room to room. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's all lit up. Lovely, lovely. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's if there was more of that in the movie, um, it could have been uh, um, more engaging to me and more intriguing. I think also that flatness uh, kind of for me straddles the line of you know is this flat on purpose or is it like she just picked mediocre actors i don't i don't think any of them really do that great of a job and i think that perhaps there's a reason we haven't really seen any of them do much of anything since then besides emma watson i think she does that on purpose though yeah i think she chooses people that um don't necessarily don't pop off the screen Right. Hmm. They, none of them do. Um, and they just, they seem like they're just these side characters in their own lives or something. Yeah. Like there's just no, who's the protagonist here? There's not really a protagonist. No, it's, it's, it's the guy. It's, I mean, yeah, I guess. But then uh, it jumps to like these different scenes where it's focusing on different characters that he's not involved in. True. Right. So it's kind of like, it's that omniscient third person type situation. Um, but I think, I don't know. I, I kind of give her a little bit of credit. I think there's, I think there's way more here than people are seeing. That's what I mm-hmm. think. Okay. And that like, you know, it's based on a vanity fair article essay Yeah, uh, that she read on vacation, of course, um, <laughs> which is just thinking about this whole thing, like her being on vacation, she has a stack of magazines. She's picking up vanity fair. Like, oh, this, I can't put this down. Let me write yeah. a screenplay about this. That, I mean, she's lived, obviously lives in a very heightened state of affluence. Yes. Um, and I mean, because that's of her family, all that kind of stuff. Right, but also right, her own work. I mean, it's not like she's not making money off her movies and stuff. Probably not that mm. much, though, that I think about it. No, she's probably <laughs> making more off wine, just like her dad. Just like her dad. Um, um, okay, so here's here he, here's uh, kind of my capstone question. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Going back to this theme of like exploitation, mm-hmm. um, you know, there is in her interviews regarding the film coppola says pretty um empathetically that like at at the very least like she thought like oh what they these kids were doing actually took some ingenuity right um which is fair uh yeah um and yet there is still like you said like literally using uh you know pull quotes um in the dialogue yeah and then she also has you know and this is part of that glassiness thing that our guy brody was talking about you know she's got this distant um connection to it because even though overall she's a younger director and she's got more of a feminine point of view than most people that would otherwise take on this story might have and the cast is majority uh young women um, but she says straight up, I quote, I don't really know kids like the ones in this story. We went to L.A. clubs and stuff when we were working on it. Everyone was on their phones and texting and photographing themselves. And I wanted to have that feeling. But no, this world was pretty exotic to me. What? But, right. That makes no sense. Yeah, because you think that she would fit pretty seamlessly. 100%. Like she's from extreme affluence. But it's, a, you know, is this now, you know, it, it, she's technically a Gen Xer. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so there is that generational divide that is perhaps happening here where it's once again, like, um, you know, we do this too as millennials, right. Yeah. Uh, where it's like you, you look at it with, um, 
you're othering, right? You're you're othering yes, this yeah. entire group of people. <laughs> and so aren't we thereby then like I, I feel like that's dangerous because then she also talks about like one of the pull quotes that is used from Israel Broussard's character um yeah. is, you know, when he's getting uh questioned by the authorities, um and he says that he was he kept focusing in the interview about how many Facebook followers he had gained yeah. uh, since the story went viral. And, you know, I, 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 I do. I think that there's an argument to be made that there is can be dangerous to once again shift so much of the blame onto uh, social media writ large rather yeah. than like the actual like class issues that should be more at the forefront with this story, but that are perhaps lost. Cause like you said, the one thing that Sofia Coppola and these kids do have in common is extreme wealth. Yeah. I don't think she would ever, she's able, that's just not capable of it, but like she doesn't have the lived experience. Really yeah. She doesn't have that vantage point. Right. No, it's like impossible <laughs> on some level. I don't know. I love it. I think it's fantastic. It's so much better than cooking bear. Uh, that I'll agree with. Film. I can't. Yeah. Second yeah. best film she ever made. Sure. Thanks. No, maybe fourth. Okay. Do have some <laughs> trivia that we have like a, a closing <laughs> segment. Yes. New closing segment. Uh, yes, this concept of stranger than fiction, um, got, uh, got me inspired. So here's what I'm going to do, Dan. Um, I'm here calling this left untraced trivia because there's plenty of other films from the 2010s Ooh. that that fit under the stranger than fiction umbrella that we weren't able to touch on since we yeah. just focused on uh, bling ring and then cocaine bear for our new release. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to describe a film to you. Sure. You are going to tell me whether that film exists oh, or not. No. Is that okay. is it fact they did create a movie? And oh, did that they, movie okay. exist? Is it a movie or not? Okay, is it a movie or not? Fact or fiction exists or doesn't exist. Okay, okay. here's number one. We're going to start in the year of 2011. So you do okay. get a little clue. Year of release. Sure. 2011. From the guy that directed the original Crazed Bear movie, The Edge, starring Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins, and featuring the dude who played Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter's mentor, play, oh <laughs> uh, playing now an army lieutenant and former school companion of Saddam Hussein's son, Uday Hussein, who is violently coerced into becoming Uday's body double. He gives an insider's look into the life of the Iraqi tyrant. Oh my God. Does that movie uh, exist? I'm going to say no. It does exist. Fact. Uh, You're 0 for 1 right now, Dan. Uh, the, de- awful. <laughs> the Devil's Double starred uh, Dominic Cooper. It was directed by Lee Tamahori and made $4.8 million at the box like office. a Mad Libs movie. I um, know, right? And is, once again, true story. Fact, stranger than fiction. This, stranger than fiction. All right. This, uh, okay. this okay. kid was, uh, was hired to be the body double for Saddam Hussein's son. Okay. 2012. <clears throat> From the director of HBO's somehow just as problematic as the original Lolita remake, <laughs> the woman that played the blonde that Tom Hardy disguised himself as in A Dream in Inception, stars as Rebecca Spite, a Nebraskan eBay wunderkind that sells a three-year-old chicken McNugget shaped like George Washington for $8 million, only to get sued by McDonald's for libel. Uh, I feel that, that that does feel like a movie to me. So You're over two, Dan. You're over two. Oh, I want to meet up. Uh, <laughs> if I were to make that movie, I would call it Presidential Poultry. <laughs> Groner, I know. Okay, oh, okay. oh you still that have a chance. Sounds fun, though. I feel like I, I don't like. Thank that you. One. I know. Yeah. I know. Uh, I almost went with uh, the director of the Greg Kinnear movie, The Founder, but I thought that would be too oh, on geez. the nose. 
Yeah. Um, but speaking of Greg Kinnear, here's 2014. Um, 2014. 2014. Um, you still have a chance to win. Uh, you're 0 for 2, but there's three left. The screenwriter of Braveheart directs Greg Kinnear, Thomas Hayden Church, and Cocaine Bear's very own Margot Martindale in an adaptation of the quote-unquote true story of a four-year-old that undergoes risky emergency surgery and miraculously comes out the other side, saying he went to heaven and came back. The film reportedly paints the child as a messenger of God and not the heretic he truly is. True. Yeah, you know this movie, right? Yeah, I know yeah. that movie. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. You're, you're, you're one for two. Uh, <laughs> one for this, three. One for three. I don't know how to do math. Heaven is Real was the name of that movie. Yeah, I remember seeing like the trailer for that. I was like, what? <laughs> it's so insane. So insane. Uh, $102 million that movie made. That's an A-plus cinema score, guaranteed. <laughs> uh, reminding us all of the stranglehold Christian nationalism has yes, on this country. Seriously. Uh, welcome to fascism. <laughs> all right, good morning. 2016. The first feature from a Rhodes Scholar has yet to make a follow-up. His original feature debut centered on Daniel Radcliffe as an FBI agent that, under orders from his boss played by Tony Collette, goes deep undercover with a white supremacist gang led by an alt-right talk radio host played by Tony-winning playwright Tracy Letts that has stolen illegal radioactive isotopes. The film was a New York Times critic's pick and sits on Rotten Tomatoes with a more than respectable 84%, but it only made 300k at the box office. Oh my god, uh, this is really tough. Uh, I'm going to say it's that's false. No, that movie exists. How does that movie exist? <laughs> it's called Tony Collette. That's something that threw me off. I, I can't right? see Tony. She's looking for a paycheck. What's going on? I know. Like playing. Yeah, playing right. funny. What's going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, the movie's called Imperium. The director is Daniel oh, I sort of Vaguely remember this. What is it Radcliffe was, doing these days? Jeez. <laughs> it was one of those. It was from Lionsgate, so I believe it was one of those movies where like Lionsgate was one of the first studios to try to the VOD stuff. Oh, so like, VOD, yeah. They put it out. It it bombed in the first weekend, so they pulled it and put it on VOD. Oh, now I remember the poster. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Last one. Um, okay. Redeem myself yeah, here. Yeah. Redeem yourself at least end with a two out of five. Uh, 2018. This month marks the fifth anniversary of the release of the first non-dystopian YA adaptation effort of the visionary filmmaker behind the Maze Runner trilogy. Brad Pitt produced and spearheaded the project because he wanted to bring to the world the story of Atsi the Iceman, whom he has a prominent tattoo of on his arm. The world's oldest known natural human mummy, all that is known is that he was likely killed by an arrow from behind. Taking cues from Apocalypto and 300 alike, this trashy historical thriller features a largely no-name cast, but a cameo by Michael Fassbender as the German hiker that discovers Otzi's body in 1991. No freaking way. Yeah, that's fiction. I made that one up. <laughs> I knew it. It was too much. The Brad Pitt t- tattoo is a giveaway. <laughs> that is Brad Pitt's tattoo, though. Um, is it? Yeah. Oh and, my god! So I got that wrong. So this came in. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he didn't. He didn't greenlight a movie about his tattoo. Um, what? Oh my lord! It just if, goes uh, to show you. There's a million different stories every day. That right. You can tell. Uh, if I were to and, make it, I would call it the Iceman Frometh Brad's Tat Origins. <laughs> Two colons in there. It's funny because all of these sound more interesting than Cocaine Bear. <laughs> thank you thank you all right maybe i'll write my script do. and send it to elizabeth banks we really do what are we coming up uh next week what are we doing i'm excited because i just learned you uh we're watching this movie for the first time for our upcoming episode it's uh, nicholas winding reffins bronson uh starring tom hardy from 2008 uh, with a little chaser of the terminal 
by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> what a doubleheader. I watched these two movies back to back, by the way. Oh my God. That, that's a, that's what do you, that's a one, two punch. If ever I heard of one. All right. So stay tuned next week. You can hear my reaction to that. Uh, thanks for listening. This has been film trace. <laughs>